Recovering Orion, and a snazzy new suit for moonwalkers this week on Planetary Radio. Welcome, I'm Matt Kaplan of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. It's not likely to happen in 2024, but it looks like humans will return to the moon before too much longer. The first woman and next man are likely to travel there in an Orion spaceship or capsule. And when they return to Earth, they'll splash down not far from my hometown of San Diego, California. We'll take a trip to Naval Base San Diego and climb on board the ship that might recover the uncrewed Artemis I Orion capsule this year. In November, the USS John P. Murtha successfully completed the final recovery exercise in preparation for that event. We'll meet its captain and the woman in charge of landing and recovery for NASA. Then we'll sit down with Daniel Klopp of ILC Dover, the company that made the suits for every astronaut that walked on the moon half a century ago, and that is deeply involved in creation of the next, much improved moon suit. Bruce Betts will help us close out this first episode of the new year when he takes us across the night sky and introduces a new space trivia contest. We learned with great relief just hours before we made this week's show available that the James Webb Space Telescope had successfully extended and tensioned all five of its sunshield layers. This is a very big deal. Most of the critical steps have now been completed. By the time you hear this, both the primary and secondary mirrors may have been locked into place. Anyway, we dearly hope so. Go JWST! Did you hear about the big boom over Pittsburgh on New Year's Day? Tens or possibly hundreds of thousands of people heard it. NASA believes that a meteor traveling at about 45,000 miles per hour, or 72,000 kpm, exploded over suburbs of the Pennsylvania city. It probably generated a tremendous flash of light, but the overcast sky kept it from being seen. Here's the kicker. The space rock may have only been about a yard or a meter across. Think about what a 10-meter-wide meteor might have done, and then think about why planetary defense deserves to be a priority. You'll find more space news and wonders in the December 31st edition of The Downlink, our free online newsletter. For example, there's the farm on the International Space Station, tended by a couple of astronauts. And did you know that as of the end of 2021, we found over 4,500 planets orbiting other stars. Planetary.org slash downlink is the place to find these and other stories. It was back in 2017 that I first visited Naval Base San Diego to learn how the U.S. Navy would support recovery of the Orion capsules that will carry humans to the moon and back. We've got a link to that first tour on this week's show page at planetary.org slash radio along with lots of other great links and images. They include pictures I took when I returned on November 9th of 2021. The USS John P. Murtha had just returned from practicing how the Artemis I Orion will be scooped up from the Pacific. I climbed up a ramp into the cavernous well at the stern of the Murtha, where a full-size model of Orion was secured. Standing next to it was Melissa Jones. We'd first met during that 2017 visit 
Melissa was and is director of NASA's Landing and Recovery Operations, and she had good reason to be proud. Melissa, it is delightful to see you once again. It has been almost four years since I stood in a gigantic bay like this in front of an Orion test article like that. It's a blast to be back. Thank you. It's great to see you again. Yes, it's been four years, but we're, we're back and we just did our last test. Well, what do you mean? Last test? A recovery test? Correct. So last year or four years ago when we saw you before, we were just getting started with trying to develop procedures and hardware. And we've had those four years to refine all that we've been working on. And this was our mission certification run. We are ready to recover Orion. Which is not far off, finally. You must be, the whole team must be pretty excited. Yes, we are very excited. Uh, early next year, we should have a splashdown off the coast of San Diego, and it really feels so real. We have flight hardware at Kennedy Space Center. We've got a giant stacked rocket, and everybody's in the final phases of getting ready for flight. This ship that we're standing in right now, you told me a moment ago, the hope is this may actually be the ship that recovers Artemis 1? That's correct. I, I believe this is the current ship assigned for Artemis 1. That's why we're doing the, the certification with them. Great ship, great crew, leadership team is on point. We had a great week with them last week, so we're really hoping that the launch stays where it's at and doesn't slip outside of their support availability. What has happened in the last four years as Orion has continued to develop? And you've been waiting on that big rocket, the Space Launch System. There's been a lot happening. So we've been developing systems at KSC for the pre-launch. We've been training the, the launch team, uh, stacking boosters. You know, once we got the flight hardware, we stacked the boosters, stacked the core stage. We just put Orion on top a couple weeks ago, and we're doing our power-up testing. But for the recovery team, we had a lot to figure out after our last mission, EFT-1, was in 2014. And we learned a lot and needed to change some things about how we did recovery operations. So. Um, we did a proof of concept with a couple of different pieces of hardware that was early on. Last time we talked, we had just finished that proof of concept and we had chosen our recovery method. Um, since then, we went through verification and validation, which basically means that we did testing that allowed us to get all of the evidence that we needed to prove that we could meet our requirements. And then um, March 2020, right as COVID was hitting, we were on out here on the same ship with a different crew and we did some refinement of our operations and our procedures, then schedules that we knew when and how we wanted to do the operations now that we knew that our hardware was good. And this was our final training run. Something you got to expect now and then yes, when you're standing absolutely. on. <laughs> and this was our final test. It was our certification run where we did our final fine-tuning of our schedules, procedures, trained a couple of our folks who needed to get additional certifications, and it went amazingly well. That's great to hear. How much is this going to look like, what we have seen over the history of the space program with spacecraft being recovered at sea, Apollo, and even now with uh, Crew Dragon from SpaceX. Right. So, well, so as you know, we have a long history with the Navy recovering capsules. This will look a little different because we're using a well deck 
instead of a crane. Which is what we're standing in right now, the well deck. Correct, yes. So that will look different, but it's the same proficient team of operators. SpaceX is a little different. They come back from station. Um, they have a little bit more flexibility with their landing site, and their capsule is a little smaller. So when we commit to come back from the moon, there's not that much we can do to change where we land and fine-tune that. And so we have to have... Um, medical capabilities on board and the ability to go farther out than a, a company like SpaceX does. Tell me about this test article that we're standing in front of, which to the untrained eye looks like it could be ready to go into space. Yes, it is a just a test article or a mock capsule. It was used early on in development for um, drop testing to water, like water uh, impact testing. And when they were finished with that and they verified that the design of the capsule was good enough for those types of impacts, they were going to just, they didn't need it anymore, and we did. We needed to have something to test with. And so we um, partnered with uh, the owners, Lockheed Martin, to accept responsibility for it, and we've been maintaining it and keeping it up to date ever since then. It looks like a capsule, but it's actually like just a big it's full of metal and iron. There's no interior, like there's no hatch that works. There's no windows. There's no docking mechanism on the top. It basically is just uh, available for us to use and bang up and use for a test article. You know, in spite of it not being a real capsule, there are going to be museums fighting over this someday. That's possible. That's very true. It's very true. So when we're done with it, we would definitely turn it over to somebody who could get some historic value out of it, but we still need it for a little while longer. There is a big assembly on top, which I actually asked you, is that a real docking assembly? And you said, no, no, that wouldn't be needed for this. But what are we looking at? So that's just a tunnel. It's just a, helps it to be a representative piece of hardware. On top of that, we attach GPS antennas, uh, cameras, things that will allow us to gather data as we go forward uh, strobe so we can see the capsule at night but it's just a fake tunnel that's just a part of the anatomy of the fake capsule. Just a couple of other questions you mentioned the pandemic we have talked across so many projects with so many teams at NASA about what dealing with that has done to the development of you know spacecraft like this and and all the others how did it affect development of Orion did it delay things much? So I think there's definitely some delays, but fortunately for us, we were able to continue doing critical operations at the Space Center. We were very careful. We brought only folks in that were required to do those operations and everybody else worked from home, masks, social distancing. We have a, a real stringent um, cleaning process and organization that comes in and uh, if somebody had ended up with COVID, it was an, an alert was sent to our medical team. The medical team did contact tracing, came in and sterilized the area. So we got very good at trying to process as safely as possible, knowing that we really couldn't stop. We really needed to continue. Um, and management, um, my management at the, the Space Center has been very, very strategic and careful with how we've allowed COVID op operations to continue during COVID. There are no astronauts here with us today, but I know, I'm sure that astronauts have played a big part in the development of the capsule, particularly the things that the astronauts are going to have to deal with directly. Can you talk about that? Sure. So we typically have a flight crew member with us underway. We did have representation from the crew office, but just not, a, uh, not an astronaut. But they are definitely a part of all of our meetings, our CONOP development. Obviously, we're going to be recovering them, right? And they're very invested in that. Um, the timing of this test with a lot of stuff going on with crew missions for commercial crew 
and some other things happening in the agency right now made it difficult for us to get somebody on board. But they're involved in all of the decisions that we make. And once we fly the uncrewed mission to Artemis 1 and we continue these tests for crewed missions, you will see their participation and the participation of our health and medical tech authority will pick up. They'll be on the ship more and we'll be working those, those operations. You have been on this for a long time, leading this part of this, this vital part of the operation. Pretty rewarding? It is very rewarding. I started in August of 2015 um, and have developed the team, added things, taken, seen what's worked, and so it's been an evolution over time. I just have an amazing team, and so it's so gratifying to see those guys come out here and execute these operations successfully. It's just been a great week for us. Where will you be? when Artemis 1 takes to the sky, and for that matter, Artemis 2 and Artemis 3. Currently, I'll be at the Kennedy Space Center for the launch, um, and then we'll, I'll be out here for the recovery when we come back. That's pretty thrilling. I hope we get to talk again when uh, that Orion capsule makes its way right back here to uh, the naval base in uh, San Diego. That would be great. It would be good to see you again. Thanks, Melissa. Thank, thank you. A few feet from Melissa Jones stood the commanding officer of the USS John P. Murtha. Fans of college football may remember him from his days as a star player and captain of the Naval Academy team. Yeah, my name is Jervia Loda. I'm from San Diego, California. Uh, I'm the son of a chief petty officer, HTC. Uh, I'm a local boy from San Diego, uh, and I'm the commanding officer of the USS John P. Murtha. It is a pleasure to meet you, Skipper, and we are uh, almost neighbors. I'm a local as well. I just came down the hill from Chula Vista. Awesome. And it is such an honor to be here on this great vessel. Well, thank you. We we pride ourselves in having the sexiest ship on the waterfront, you know, and how we look and how we operate, uh, the way that people you know, walk around here with smiles on their faces. We truly have a special group on board this ship. And, you know, I went to Morris High School um, just down the road from Paradise Hills. So, you know, to be, you know, have the opportunity to lead these young sailors here in my hometown is just a dream come true. And how about the opportunity to play the role that your ship may be playing, from what I'm told from some of the NASA folks, when uh, Artemis One, that Orion capsule, drops down into the Pacific Ocean, not too many miles offshore. Yeah, it's just a huge honor um, to have uh, the opportunity to do something as historic as recovering the capsule. Uh, you know, we do a lot of missions uh, on this ship. We're tasked to bring Marines ashore. We're tasked to defend ourselves. We're tasked to do human humanitarian operations. But there's nothing more sexy and cooler than being able to recover a capsule that just entered space. Tell me about this huge space where we're standing right now. It's radio. I mean, we'll share some photos with people, but they're not going to have the fun of standing where I am. Yeah, it's huge. It's called the well deck, and it's designed to take on water. And we call it the captain's pool because when we don't have craft in here, we actually ballast down to eight feet. So think, imagine an eight-foot uh, deep pool, and... When we have fun, the crew just goes up to the catwalk and jumps in, and we have a little swim call. And that's one thing that you do in the Navy, where everyone just appreciates it, uh, and it's one of those positive sea stories that they could take back to the, their kids one day. Now, but, wait a minute. They do it right here in the well? This fills to about the eight-foot level? Absolutely. And you join in? 
I'm the first one in, last one out, every single time. Every underway we've had, with the exception of this uh, this mission, we've had a swim call, whether it was inside the well or outside the ship. And that's something, like, uh, one of the traditions in the Navy. If you've been in the Navy for so long and you've never experienced a, sh uh, a swim call, shame on the CO, shame on the captain for not giving them the opportunity. And it's an indoor pool in your case. Exactly, so you don't have to deal with sharks, you don't have to deal with seas. It's a nice controlled environment. You know, the only thing that to be aware of, when they jump that high, people get a little bit gnarly and they try to do backflips, you know, and dive head first. Uh, so we have to be able to monitor that. I gotta say, I don't know if you've read any of the Master and Commander books, but there are scenes in that where the, the captain of the ship, the main character across all these books, he loves to jump overboard and go swimming. One of the things uh, unique about this ship, and probably the first time in history, uh, we actually did a video for an abandoned ship drill where we actually launched a life raft over the side and we jumped from the boat valley. And I had to be the first one in to show that everyone that it's not that high. It's about 60 feet, so it's relatively high. But if I can do it, this old man, then anybody can do it. <laughs> you don't look that old. So <laughs> tell me, how does that capability fit into the job that you may do when you recover something that's going to look a lot like this fake capsule right behind us. Yeah, so it's right in our wheelhouse. Everything that we do, the, the things that we have to do to prepare ourselves to have the capsule enter our well deck, it's all amphibious. So we're launching boats, you know, we're launching aircraft, we're sinking the ship and bringing something in our well. And that's all amphibious. This is what we do, and this is our bread and butter. So to be able to bring something in our well deck, you know, that, you know, whether it's Marines, uh, whether it's the capsule, this is something that we are trained and bred to do. So this is, we are the ideal platform to be able to make this happen. I am told that things went really well during that last recovery test, just completed recently. Yeah, first of all, this crew is special. We don't lose, we take tasks head on, we, we work super hard, but we party like pirates. So they understand that it all starts with winning. And this crew is special. Uh, we've been worked really hard this summer. Uh, we just came from Saipan, Peru, uh, and then we're tasked with this mission. So this is not easy work. Think about six to seven foot swells, launching seven meters, 11 meters uh, in heavy ocean, uh, in heavy seas, and then having to recover them again, uh, having to get within 100 feet of this capsule in the middle of the night, it's hard work. And these sailors are working 12 plus hour days, gritty, just getting sweaty and bloody. And you, you talk about the amount of work that it takes to recover something like this in our well. We don't like to lose, so we ensured that we made sure we were ready to ensure that this uh, mission was a success. I'll just congratulate you and your crew on uh, all of this work and on your mission. Thank you for your service. And I sure look forward to, I hope you get a chance to see a little bit more of your, uh, your great vessel. Awesome, sir. And thank you for having the, uh, giving me the opportunity to talk uh, about my amazing crew. They're truly special, and none of this would have happened if it wasn't for them. Thanks, Captain. Awesome. Thank you. Captain Jervi Aloda of the USS John P. Murtha. We are grateful to NASA, the U.S. Navy, and the crew of the Murtha for welcoming us. When we return in moments, we'll learn about the work underway to create the spacesuit astronauts will wear when they visit the moon. There's so much going on in the world of space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Sarah, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Are you looking for a place to get more space? Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. 
you can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Make sure you like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Welcome back. Some of you may remember my praise for a book called Spacesuit. You'll hear about it again in moments when I talk with Daniel Klopp. Dan is the Director of Space Systems Marketing and Business Development for ILC Dover, the company that has designed and manufactured every EVA or extravehicular activity spacesuit for NASA, from the Apollo suits through the EMUs or extravehicular mobility units used on the International Space Station. Now the company is deeply involved in development of not one, but two new and improved suits that astronauts may someday wear on the moon and possibly Mars. Dan Klopp, thank you for coming in to uh, talk about the next moon suit. Uh, We're glad to have you on Planetary Radio. Well, thank you uh, for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm going to start with this uh, headline, this uh, heading. At the top of your spacesuit webpage, anyone can try to make a spacesuit. Only ours have been to the moon. You guys aren't proud or anything, are you? (laughs) Well, we're quite proud of our legacy. We've developed every EVA spacesuit for NASA for the past 50 plus years. Not just EVA suits, right? This is really a legacy that goes way back. And it is very well documented in a book that I know you are also uh, very aware of that we talked about on this show a couple of years ago. We'll put a link up to the book Spacesuit Fashion in Apollo uh, on this week's uh, episode page. I highly recommend listening to that interview with Nicholas de Monchot and even more highly reading that book, which is about, in part, because it's about much more, but it's in part about the development of the suit that worked so well for the uh, uh, Apollo astronauts more than 50, well, 50 years ago now for, for the last of them. Right. Uh, it, it's an amazing story. And a very dramatic story, which ILC played such a huge role in. Yes, we're uh, quite proud of that legacy. And uh, one of the amazing things, I think, about our development efforts and the continuing work is a long-term partnership we've had with a company that today is known as Collins Aerospace, uh, but back in the day was known as uh, Hamilton Standard. And they've gone through multiple name changes uh, since the Apollo era, but we've uh, completely independent companies, but we've maintained a partnership with them. The Collins people do the life support system for the suit, and we do the suit itself. To me, it's an amazing testimony to that partnership that we've maintained, even though we're completely independent companies, have actually gone through multiple rounds of different ownerships of the companies in the course of those uh, 50 plus years that we've been partnered with them. Uh, we maintain that partnership straight today. We're working with them on the next generation lunar landing suits. And I think we'll come back to that partnership uh, later on because there are so many other companies also involved in the development of this new moon suit. Just to give a little bit more of the history of, uh, of ILC, I would guess that the company, or at least where the company started, is far better known maybe to hundreds of millions of people, especially women, as a company called Playtex. Yes, it's, we have the same historical root as the company that is known today as Playtex. The division between the two, the split between the consumer products piece of International Latex Corporation, which is where our ILC comes from, and 
the government contracting bit, which we are currently a legacy of, uh, happened quite some number of years ago. But uh, it's it's a it makes for uh, for a good story, even though it's not quite true that uh, because of the timing of the of the split, there was a running joke, as I understand, back in the Apollo era, that the same company that made bras and girdles made the lunar landing suits. But isn't it true? I mean, this is what uh, Nicholas Demacheau talks about that some of the best seamstresses who were developing, making bras, were brought over f- to work on stitching together the Apollo moon suits. And, and they had to be, yeah, they had to be very precise for good reason. Exactly. And that was, fortunately, when the companies split, we got the, the best of the best of the seamstresses. <laughs> so uh, maybe a bit of a shame for the consumer products piece. Uh, but frankly, the precision required on that side isn't quite the precision required on uh, uh, in terms of stitching uh, spacesuits. We really want to talk about what's going on with the development of this new suit, which um, I'm, I'm, I guess we have to give some mention to the EMU, or Extravehicular Mobility Unit, which which is the suit that at least all American astronauts and many of the others who visit the International Space Station are going to wear if they need to go outside for uh, some extravehicular activity. And and that is also a suit that you guys are responsible for, as you said. That's correct. We developed that suit back in the early 80s, and it has had numerous upgrades over the years. You will see some references that are inaccurate that say they're still using the same suit that we used back in 1980. Not quite true because of advances in material science. We're constantly upgrading the various components of that suit. But yes, we have been in continual development of the EMU, the Extravehicular Mobility Unit, which was used uh, in the shuttle era and is currently being used on the International Space Station. There is another suit, of course, that is also used uh, when people go outside the ISS, and that's the Russian suit, the, the so-called Orlan suit, which I, it, from the sound of it has an even longer history than the EMU. Yes, I believe that's correct. I don't have all the history details in mind, but I have spoken with several astronauts who, both NASA and ESA astronauts, who have done spacewalks in both suits. So several NASA astronauts have actually gone out in the mm. Russian Orlan suit uh, for a spacewalk and several ESA astronauts, typically who go out in, in the EMU that we developed. Sometimes they do go out in the Russian built Orlan suit. And it's always interesting for me as a marketing and business development person to uh, sort of keep tabs on my competition, so to speak, um, <laughs> and learn more about uh, about what the Russian suit does well and what our suit does well and sort of compare and contrast. That's fascinating. I did not know that there was that mix and match, uh, now and then at least, among uh, spacesuits on the ISS. So I've spoken with three astronauts who have done spacewalks in both uh, the Russian Orlan suit and the EMU that we developed and manufactured. Let's turn uh, much more specifically to this new suit, the XEMU, or Exploration Extravehicular Mobility Unit. I, a lot of what I was able to learn about it, I mean, from your website, from NASA, but also from a report that, that we'll maybe bring up again in a few minutes from the NASA Inspector General, which conducted an audit, as you know, about development of this new suit, the XEMU, which uh, came out in August of 2021. It, one of the things in, it's one of the appendices in that report is a, a chart that compares 
the current suit, the EMU used on the ISS, and this new suit. It's very impressive to look at the improvements, the advantages, and the basic design of the suit that uh, men and women are going to wear on the surface of, uh, of the moon. Can you, can you talk about some of these priorities and, and advantages? It's interesting what's going on now in the spacesuit development world, uh, because there are multiple competing designs going on right now for the, uh, for the Artemis missions. And it's yet to be decided which one or what combination of those will be actually used. At ILC Dover, we have contributing to two different design paths mm. uh, in this uh, competition for the next generation uh, suit. The XEMU is based on a design that we delivered to NASA a few years ago, uh, which at the time was called the Z2. And it was specifically designed as an evolution of the EMU to provide extra mobility in the lower torso. Because one of the differences between the Apollo suits that we, the A7L suit that we developed over 50 years ago, and today's EMU is the mobility in the lower torso. Hmm. Uh, specifically, the EMU was never designed to be a planetary exploration suit that was only designed for use in Earth orbit or in a nearest zero-G microgravity environment. So it has very little mobility in the lower torso, intentionally so. This is because even though we call them spacewalks, nobody really needs to walk much in an EMU. That's correct. All of the movement around the International Space Station, to use that as an example, is done with their hands and arms. They translate uh, using those uh, those, uh, gold anodized aluminum rails that are bolted to the outside of the International Space Station. And so they do all their movement by using their hands and arms and their legs just sort of dangle. So uh, it's, it's an interesting terminology that we do call it a space walk when it might be more appropriately termed a space float. Yes. <laughs> so this the suit that you'd mentioned, the Z2, I also read about another suit that uh, is currently in development at ILC. Is that the Astro? And is that related to this? So, so the Astro suit is our own commercially developed suit that we're developing. Uh, again, we're in partnership with Collins Aerospace to do the life support system for that suit. But that's actually on a different development path than the XEMU. Hmm. And so this is part of this competition that is being set up. It's not that dissimilar to what is going on with taking astronauts back and forth to International Space Station, where today we have the SpaceX Crew Dragon, but in the near future, we'll have the Boeing Starliner, and then followed not too far behind that by the uh, the Sierra Space... Um, the, the Dream Chaser. The Dream Chaser, yes, thank you. And so there will be multiple competing and maybe competing isn't the right word, multiple ways uh, to carry humans to space. We see the same sort of evolution in terms of the way NASA is moving the space industry and commercial space is heading to have multiple ways of taking an EVA. This is something, of course, that we've talked about many times on this show, especially during our Space Policy Edition with Casey Dreyer, this move toward commercial development for space where NASA is more of a customer, a client, than actually in charge of the development. 
as it is, for example, with the space launch system, that big rocket that hopefully is going to take these astronauts back to the moon someday. It's a very interesting parallel. So when I see, because in the uh, IG's report, I counted more than 25 different uh, vendors and contractors who are involved with the development of the XEMU suit. But are, are some of those companies working on different designs? We are aware of, on the commercial side, uh, since there's much more secrecy in terms of the development on the commercial side than there is on the, uh, the, the government finance development side, it's a, a little bit more difficult to find competitive intelligence ah. from a marketing <laughs> perspective of the world. Uh, and we're uniquely positioned in ILC Dover in that we are contributing to the NASA in-house development, which is the XEMU, and we're pursuing a, independent of that, uh, which is a little tricky from an intellectual property sort of maintenance standpoint. We're pursuing independent of the XEMU, what we call Astro. There are advantages and disadvantages to each side. I mean, everything in the engineering world involves trade-offs. We're pursuing a, a different path with the Astro development than the contribution that we're making to the XEMU. It's complex, more so than I thought, just from the research that I had done prior to our conversation. I'm going to go back to that comparison, though, between what NASA is targeting to achieve with the XEMU as compared to the EMU, or for that matter, to the old Apollo suits. They're really, when, when you look at this chart uh, in the uh, Inspector General's report, the advantages just look tremendous. Can, can you talk about that? Some of the differences between different types of EVA spacesuits involve the entry system. That's one of the key differences that differentiates. So if we go back to our own legacy in ILC Dover, the Apollo era, the A7L suits were a rear entry design. So you got into that suit from a zipper that was in the back of the suit and you sort of opened up the back and climbed in to the suit. Each of those suits was, except for the gloves and the helmet, were pretty monolithic and they were each custom tailored for each individual astronaut. So back in the Apollo era, the astronauts used to visit our facility in central Delaware and come to be measured and then for a suit fit check. A fitting, yeah. And that's no longer the case. So we don't do that for the current EMU suit. And the XEMU is an evolution of that, where it's a modular design that has common joint connections but to use the EMU, the current EMU as an example, we have different length arms that we make for that. We have many different size gloves. Uh, we have different size lower torsos that all clip onto three different sizes of upper torso that we make for that suit. So if you have somebody who's got fairly small shoulders, but say unusually long arms, we can assemble a suit from components using say a medium upper torso, but the longer arms and lower, longer lower torso. Hmm. Or conversely, if you have an astronaut that uh, has really broad shoulders, but is maybe shorter in, stat in stature, they might require a large upper torso, but shorter arms and, and a shorter lower torso to clip together. That's so, my suit, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, I'm a combination of the worst of both worlds. I, I have broad <laughs> shoulders and I'm very tall. So actually, mm. I'm, uh, I'm a little too tall to uh, have qualified for... Uh, for the original NASA programs years ago. My age might disqualify me at this point, but uh, beyond that, we are accommodating people of my size in future generations of, uh, of development of suits. 
So anyway, the entry. So the current EMU is a waist entry suit. The Apollo suit was a rear entry suit. The XEMU, NASA wanted to go back to a rear entry design. And one of the reasons for that is they want to accommodate, and it's not clear that this will actually happen, but they want to accommodate what's called a suit port design. Because if you go all the way back to the Apollo era, one of the problems that the lunar regolith creates is it has very sharp edges at a microscopic level. That horrible dust, that killer dust. And it sticks to everything. And there was quite a bit of problem back in the Apollo era of bringing that back after they did an EVA walking around, around on the moon, bringing that back into the lunar lander. Well, one of the concepts with a rear entry suit is to have the suit go out during the first walk, but then stay out forevermore and use the suit itself as an airlock. More yeah. Or you would back up to the, after your first walk out on the moon, you would back up to the, the lunar lander and clip on and it would form a seal around where the backpack, where the life support backpack, the pliss connects. And you could then swing the pliss out of the way and climb out of the back of the suit into the lunar rover, but leave the suit itself outside the vehicle. There are some great videos that NASA has done where they show suits of this design being used on Earth, of course, but in testing. It's exactly like you said. You back up to the crawler or the uh, the spacecraft, and somebody on the inside, once you have a good seal, right, they open a hatch and you climb out the back of the suit. Right. That's part of that design. Interestingly enough, our commercial design, our Astro suit, we've designed that to be manufactured either as a rear entry or a waist entry. Oh, interesting. So it's, uh, it could be configured either way. And one of the reasons we're doing that is we envision that could be a replacement for or an addition to, maybe is a better terminology, for the current EMU. So we could put on a much less mobile, but lower mass, lower torso to use that, that upper torso design, the rest of the suit design, on a commercial space station for an EVA, for example, where you don't require that highly mobile lower torso, or alternatively, we could do a different configuration of that Astro design to be a rear entry with a highly mobile lower torso that could accommodate this suit port design. Hmm. You mentioned gloves, which if you talk to any astronauts, and I've talked to quite a few who have done EVAs, that is the thing you hear about because hands have to be pretty mobile, but they've also got to be protected. It's apparently quite a strain with the current suits. It always has been to work with these gloves. Have there been advances? Are we looking forward to advances that are going to make things easier for astronauts who go to the moon and beyond? Very good question. Today's gloves are considerably different than the gloves that when we started back with the EMU program back in the early 80s. Part of that difference is the mobility and dexterity of the glove itself. And that is today the most highly customized piece of the space suit. So I mentioned that we have three different size upper torsos and multiple size lower torsos and arms and so forth. We are up to, at last count, I think 64 different sizes of gloves. Wow. Up until about Two or three months ago, we were at 63 different sizes, but there is a new astronaut that came into the program. She has unusually long, skinny fingers, and she tried a, uh, several of the sizes of gloves that we already make in our repertoire and couldn't find one that she felt was a really good fit. So we made a new set, a custom set for her. Now, of course, that set 
kind of goes into our repertoire now. And if another astronaut comes along and has those same long, skinny fingers, uh, they would fit that. Uh, the short answer to your question is, yes, we are continually improving the gloves. We actually have a glove now that's much better than the gloves um, in terms of dexterity uh, than the gloves that, uh, that have been used in the past. And we plan on carrying that forward into the Astro design. And hopefully that'll be part of the, uh, the XEMU design as well. Man, that is the the opposite of one size fits all, 64 different sizes of glove. And and this is important, of course, because one of the priorities, right? I mean, we always hear NASA administrators and others saying the first woman and the next man to walk on the moon. Back in the Apollo days, sadly, no one expected a woman to walk on the moon as part of Apollo. But now it's it's very much part of the plan. Exactly. We're planning for a much, much bigger range of human dimensions in our next generation designs. Uh, again, that's sort of a parallel between the, the work that we're contributing on the XEMU side with NASA and the work that we're doing independent of that with, with Astro. Uh, with Astro, for example, we're targeting uh, what they call the 99th percentile, just two different size upper torsos, but some clever resizing components. Uh, we plan to accommodate from roughly a five foot tall, roughly 100 pound or slightly less person up to about a six foot four, 250 pound person. That would seem to cover most of humanity, I would yeah. hope. Yeah, from looking at uh, anthropomorphic data from the population, that uh, tells us that that's about the 99th percentile. So we'll, we'll miss a half a percent on the low side and a half a percent on the high side. <laughs> Not bad. How long is NASA hoping that an astronaut will be able to spend in these suits as they you know, get around, do work uh, on the moon? Well, the current EMU uh, accommodates up to an eight-hour long spacewalk. We're planning on continuing that. Now, what we may do on the commercial side, depending on what the commercial needs evolve to, is different suits that would accommodate different length EVAs. Uh, because there is, as I mentioned earlier in this, there's always this engineering trade-off. And one of them is the total mass of the suit hmm. versus the length of life support. A little known fact about today's EMU is although it can accommodate roughly an eight hour long with a safety factor EVA, its mass here on Earth or its weight here on Earth is 350 pounds. <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to wear it in 1G. Yeah, in 1G, you don't want to wear it. In 1.6G, it's actually still it's on the, the heavy side to be lugging that much around. So we may do versions, and, and a lot of this is still in development, and we're still sort of tweaking the details of, you know, what are the, what's the proper trade-off between length of EVA and total mass of the suit. Um, so we may end up doing a, say, a four-hour long version, which is much, much less massive, which would open up, again, the possibilities to a smaller, less muscular type person to do a spacewalk that might otherwise, or to do a lunar excursion, that might otherwise not be able to. That might be the tourist model of the suit that <laughs> exactly. uh, someday somebody's <laughs> yeah. going to be wearing. I opened the show talking about how we always have to remember that when put, somebody puts on a spacesuit and go outside, they become a spacecraft and have to be protected from vacuum and radiation, but also micrometeoroids, which uh, are pelting the moon all the time. And I'm guessing that you must also be following 
you know, the developments uh, regarding debris in Earth orbit. I mean, especially after that Russian uh, anti-satellite test of, uh, of a couple of months ago. Yes. Um, that still is a high priority, right? Both the, the natural and the artificial uh, things that might go bump in the night. That is correct. The outer layer of a spacesuit, and this is true actually of all the suits we've done going all the way back to the Apollo era. You can think of it as like a full bulletproof vest, mm. a layer that to protect against micrometeorite impacts. And unlike a vest that a, uh, a law enforcement officer might wear, this is the entire part of the suit because one of these uh, pieces of, uh, of high velocity space dust, to give another name to micrometeorites, could hit in the thigh region and the upper mm. arm region, you'd, you'd never know where these tiny pieces of, uh, of high velocity space debris, whether they're artificial or natural, um, might be coming from and might impact the, so the whole outer layer of a spacesuit. And that, frankly, that's one of the things that leads to sort of the bulky design or look of the spacesuit. When people ask me about these designs that you see in sci-fi movies, of these uh, very uh, form-fitting, almost like a wetsuit-style design that yeah. you might see in a sci-fi movie. Just saw the, the the latest episode of The Expanse and Star <laughs> Trek. I mean, there they are walking around in these bodysuits that I guess are those types that just the suit itself is providing the protection from vacuum rather than being uh, right. pressurized the, suits. The so-called yeah. uh, uh, mechanical counterpressure suits. Yes, thank you. There's an impractical element of their design in that if you look at the physics of the impact of one of these pieces of space dust, you have to give it some time to decelerate. Otherwise, it's going to, even if it doesn't penetrate the suit, it will pass that energy right through the suit to the wearer and cause quite a bruise to the wearer. So one of the things that the current suit, although it doesn't look as sleek and cool as these mechanical counterpressure suits, it does provide that protection by having that layer of cushioning that gives some time for that piece of that, that particle of uh, space debris or space dust to decelerate and not pass that energy then along through the suit to the wearer. I think of some of the spacecraft, robotic spacecraft that have gone out and, you know, gotten in the way of space debris on purpose that have done the same kind of thing with multiple layers to decelerate uh, yes. a piece of dust that, you know, might otherwise uh, be a pretty painful experience or worse. There is one more thing about the suit, the design of the XEMU that I have to ask about, and that is the faceplate. It is, it seems to me from the look of it, radically larger than what we have seen in the past. Is that the direction that we're going in? And, and how does that protect an astronaut from these same kinds of challenges? We euph euphemistically call that the Buzz Lightyear design. It's, <laughs> it's tilted. The interface between the helmet and the helmet ring is tilted at a radical angle now compared to the either today's EMU or going all the way back to the Apollo era. And I don't know what we were thinking back then. I wasn't uh, wasn't part of the, I'm, I'm old, but I'm not that old back to the Apollo <laughs> era. But the, the attachment ring for the helmet back in that era, as Ken carried through to the current EMU, is more or less level with your sort of shoulders in a, in a standing position. Mm -hmm. One of the problems with that design is you can't look down at uh, your feet. Yes. And so back in the Apollo era, the astronauts adopted that sort of hopping gait that you saw because that was easier for them to avoid tripping over space rocks because they couldn't see their feet. 
And it's amazing. I, I've, I've challenged people to do this. Uh, take a piece of cardboard and stick it under your chin and try to walk on a rocky surface. And you will trip for sure because you need to see your feet where it's coming down. And by tilting that helmet attachment ring at an angle down towards the chest plate, it doesn't matter that it's up around the, the middle of the back of your head on the backside because you don't have eyes in the back of your head anyway. And you can't, we're not owls and we can't turn our head all the way around inside the suit anyway. So rear view is not at all critical, even though if you look at today's EMU or again, back to the Apollo era suits, the, the A7Ls, they accommodated somebody who might've had eyes in the back of their head. Yeah, had, yeah. Um, now it had covers and everything over it on the backside, but if you looked at the, the raw piece of Lexan polycarbonate plastic that forms the, the helmet piece, um, it was clear all the way back down to the attachment ring on the, on the back of your shoulders. Well, by tilting that at an angle, we provided no rear view, but better, better view down toward your feet. So hopefully make the, uh, the walk more natural on the, our return trips to the moon. Is it the same kind of material, polycarbonate or, or uh, Lexan being the, the trade name? Yeah, the GE trade name is Lexan, but uh, the generic name for the, that type of plastic is polycarbonate. And yes, we're planning on using that same material. It's what, uh, what on earth people might refer to as bulletproof glass. So again, it's uh, it's a, an extremely tough polymer that uh, you can wind up and hit it with a hammer and you can't shatter it. I want to go back to that Inspector General, the NASA Inspector General's audit that came out in August of 2021, which uh, definitely identified some problems in the development of the XEMU. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, funding shortfalls, COVID-19, and technical issues, uh, the report said, will delay its uh, creation till at least April of 2025. Well, we know there are other things that are going to keep us from uh, going back to the moon in 2024, like uh, the development of the space launch system. But I, I'm just wondering if you want to say something about how that suit and this, uh, in a sense, competition that you've talked about, how is that coming together? How is it meeting these, uh, these uh, challenges? Well, that OIG, the Office of Inspector General's report that you just referenced, is essentially what led to this parallel commercial path. Mm. At ILC Dover, we had already seen the coming of commercial space. I mean, this is no mystery. Anybody who reads sure. the popular press can see that there are multiple companies planning to put independent space stations in orbit. And there's also some plans of people to put independent of a government agency like NASA to put people on the moon and maybe someday on Mars. So we had already started internal to ILC Dover, our own quote unquote commercial development, which is what we call Astro today. What was a result of the OIG report was that NASA in parallel to continuing development on the XEMU, they released a, a request for proposal back in September of 2021 to have a competing commercial solution for a spacesuit. And that's called the XEVAS because it's actually a, a suit services contract. Under that contract, NASA would more or less lease suits rather than owning them. So today when we make a spacesuit, we sell it to NASA. NASA, and then it becomes, you know, if you think of a sort of title of ownership, NASA takes title of ownership of the current EMU suits. In this XEVAS contract, 
The bids were due just uh, a week and a half ago. Um, so our bid is in on that as well. And that's where I say we're, we're actually competing or, or um, playing in two different sandboxes, so to speak, on this from an ILC Dover specific standpoint. That was, I think, a good outcome of that, of that OIG report is that it resulted in NASA opening things up to the possibility of a commercial solution as well, which could accelerate the development and make sure that the suit is not, whichever one NASA ends up taking, is not the, the rate limiting step to get us back to the moon. I'm glad that you mentioned Mars a moment ago. And uh, we all know that that is the target for the eventual target for uh, humans that NASA has talked about for decades, that a lot of us have talked about for decades. Do you think that with these developments, are we beginning to see a spacesuit that will enable humans to uh, explore Mars? Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Earlier, I alluded to suits that were maybe less massive, but less had less life support length in terms of number of hours of walk. One of the reasons we're heading down that path, in addition to being able to accommodate the space tourist, as you had noted earlier, is to be able to accommodate a one-third G environment um, as opposed to a one-sixth G environment. And so we're talking Mars, of course. And we're not, now we're talking Mars at a third G. <laughs> Would you be surprised if, I'll be optimistic and say 20 years down the line, we see those live high-definition videos coming back from the first humans to uh, stroll around on Mars. Uh, do you think that those suits are going to look something like what we see ILC Dover and others developing now? I believe they will look very similar to what we're developing now. Again, there are just some fundamental design constraints, uh, one of which we spoke of earlier of the need to have uh, multiple layers to provide that, uh, that sort of cushioning deceleration for micrometeoroids. And there are just so many design considerations that uh, with the state of the art in material science today are going to drive the fundamental design of spacesuits in a very similar direction to what we've seen in the past. Now, if there's some massive breakthrough in material science that we're unaware of at this point, you know, that could be a game changer. But, uh, you know, looking at our crystal ball, what we see in the future, um, we think that the spacesuits that uh, take men and women to excursions on the surface of Mars will look pretty similar to what you see today. Fascinating, Dan. I hope that you and I are both around to see that happen. Uh, up there on the Red Planet. This has been an absolutely marvelous conversation. And uh, I wish uh, you the greatest of luck, you and ILC Dover, as uh, you work toward putting those men and women on the moon uh, for the first time. And it's going to be well over 50 years. Well, Matt, it's been my pleasure to uh, to join the show and uh, hope maybe uh, someday we'll, uh, we'll get a chance to uh, do this again maybe with uh, more clarity on exactly which suit and which design iteration will actually be the one that uh, puts the next set of boot prints on the moon. I'll go beyond that. I want to I go there to Dover and talk to you there and uh, actually uh, uh, get to see uh, some of those uh, 64 different sizes of gloves. Maybe you'll let me try on a pair. <laughs> we could definitely accommodate a visit for you. Dan Klopp is the Director of Marketing and Business Development for Space Systems at ILC Dover. Time for the first What's Up of 2022, everybody. Here is the chief scientist of the Planetary Society who doesn't look a day older than he did in 2021. Welcome, Bruce Betts. Hey, hey, Matt. 
How are you? <laughs> That's what I meant. <laughs> Happy New Year. Can you still see the sky, old buddy? Oh, hey, wake up. Wake up. We got radio to do. Okay, I'm back. Hey, Matt. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you as well. Let's talk about the sky, shall we? It's still there in 2022. I'm encouraged by this. In the evening, low in the west, fairly low. There's Jupiter looking really bright, and then down to its lower right, tougher to see is yellower Saturn. Mercury is actually hanging out near Saturn right around now, and Venus is going away, and it's actually going between the Earth and the Sun. So it will pop from the evening sky to the morning sky in just the next week or two. And uh, we've also got Mars in the pre-dawn. It's still, I mean, it looks like kind of a bright reddish star in the east, but it's actually a little dimmer than the red star Antares, which is near it in Scorpius. And so you can see the two reddish objects. It's actually the dimmer of the two right now. My friend Phil, he was looking through a telescope and saw a crescent something near the horizon, but thought that it was too small to be a planet. I said, no, it has to be. It had to be either Mercury or Venus. Uh, did I steer him correctly? Almost certainly it was Venus. Yeah, Mercury was hanging out in the same area, but Venus is a lot easier to see the phases. Unless he has a really big telescope, Venus is not going to look very large. And it's got quite the phase right now because it is almost between us and the sun. And so it'll be crescent looking. So that's cool. There you go, Phil. All right. This week in space history, 50 years ago, 1972, Richard Nixon announces the development of the space shuttle program. Wow. Gosh. All right. We move on to random space fact. That was a nice way to start 2022. You know, as we are recording this, not very long ago, the J JWST, James Webb, Space, James Webb Space Telescope, Sunshade, deployed successfully, which is super cool. And did you know, I'm going to compare it to the most important thing out there in space. <laughs> the Sunshade is over nine times the area of LightSail 2's solar sail. Oh, that's a great one. I I already mentioned at the top of the show, it's usually compared to the size of a tennis court, but that's that's so much more appropriate for us. <laughs> that's great. Thank you. It is. Now, people may ask, well, will it be solar sailing? I mean, yes, technically, but essentially no, because solar sailing, how efficient it is, is the area divided by the mass, and uh, the area is nine times light sail two, but the mass over 1,200 <laughs> times light sail two. So um, we still have the record for um, sailing around uh, uh, in an orbit under the power of the sun. So uh, thank you very much, JWST, for helping us protect that. To the trivia contest, I said the first trans-Neptunian object discovered was Pluto in 1930. And then I asked, not counting the moons of Pluto, when was the next trans-Neptunian object discovered, and what is it now named? How'd we do, Matt? First, this from Laura Dodd in California, who thanks you for another fine informational rabbit hole, Bruce. <laughs> I am master of the informational rabbit holes. We also, from so many of you, got lovely uh, wishes for uh, the new year. Thank you. Uh, back at you, everybody. 
Here is an answer that came from uh, someone I don't think I've read anything from before. Not our winner, sorry, Jeffrey Marshall in Hong Kong. He said it was discoverers David Jewett and Jane Liu who first suggested naming what they discovered uh, at uh, the Mauna Kea Observatory on the 30th of August in 1992. They, they called this object, well, QB1, but they called it Smiley, but that name turned out was already in use for an asteroid. So it ended up being called Albion. Yeah? Yes, indeed. Uh, After its provisional designation, which I don't know if you're going to discuss, of 1992 QB1. Albion, a lot of people, a lot of other people pointed out, mythological reference to uh, the land that we now know as uh, jolly old England. Uh, mythological uh, reference uh, to that land of giants. Uh, still a lot of giants living there, I think. Uh, <laughs> and <laughs> thank you very much for helping us with that, Jeffrey, and all the other people who got it right. But came down to random.org's choice of Brandon Gaskins. Brandon in Maine. Congratulations, Brandon. First time win. Long time uh, listener. I believe that he just might be a, a National Park Service ranger at the absolutely beautiful, stunning, worth a visit, Acadia National Park uh, there yeah, in maybe. Maine that, yeah, I visited about three months ago and had a wonderful time. Brandon, I wish I'd known you were there. Anyway, he uh, got it right, said it was Albion, discovered on August 30th, 1992, or more specifically, 15760 Albion. For that, Brandon, we are going to be sending you a copy of that great book, William Sheehan and Jim Bell's Discovering Mars, A History of Observation and Exploration of the Red Planet that we talked to those two authors about uh, just a couple of weeks ago. Really excellent book. I hope you enjoy it, Brandon, and uh, I, uh, I'll see you in the park. You mentioned that you have an interesting connection to David Jewett. <laughs> I don't know how interesting it is, but... The office I was in for all those years getting a PhD at Caltech, there was always a piece of styrofoam kind of in the shape of a gravestone that was stuck above the chalkboard. Yes, we had a chalkboard. And it said something to the effect of, here lies D. Jewett, who toiled here for years. And so I assume we shared the same office. I've never actually talked to to him <laughs> about it, but uh, it, it always... It's definitely his name is emblazoned in my mind because we, of course, were graduate students, so no one ever cleaned up anything out of the office, so it just (laughs) was there for years. We'll go on to our poet laureate, Dave Fairchild in Kansas, but there's something, he uses a term here that you're going to need to explain. It looks like cubewanos, C-U-B-E-W-A-N-O-S, but I, I understand that it has a different pronunciation and, a, and an interesting meaning. Yeah, this, this is one of my favorite uh, terminology things. The terminology in the outer solar system beyond Neptune, one, is a mess. But there are a couple really funny things, <laughs> and this is one of them. When it was found, it was given the designation based upon when it was found of 1992, QB1. It then became the example of a class of orbits that are beyond Neptune, but not in a resonant orbit like Pluto. And they named it after that object, which it was QB1. So they're called Cubawanos. <laughs> Cubawanos, QB1. Quick note, my other favorite is they have uh, three to two resonances or Plutinos. 
two to one resonances, two tinos. And then the ones that resonate with the entire solar system, a whole mess of tinos. <laughs> you don't need to laugh at that. Okay, here's the poem from Dave Fairchild. Astronomers working atop Mauna Kea discovered a TNO object, trans-Neptunian object. It was a classical cold Kuiper body and turned out to be quite a project. It had a couple of names, Smiley and Albion, but the one most apropos has come from its coded name, now classified as the bodies we call Cubiwanos. <laughs> <laughs> Just the second stanza from the submission from our, our other uh, poet that we most frequently hear from, Gene Lewin in Washington. This wee object, a distant speck, though Bonnie nonetheless, bears the name of Albion, where giants once did rest. Oh, well done. Nice. All right, new contest. Who are the main solar absorption lines, basically visible light solar absorption lines named after? Who are the main solar absorption lines at visible wavelengths named after? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest and enjoy your rabbit holes. You've got until the 12th, Wednesday, January 12th at 8 a.m. Pacific time to get us the answer. And, you know, it's still just the beginning of the year. We've got another one of those great ISS, International Space Station, wall calendars for whoever gets chosen by this one and has the right answer. So uh, good luck out there and uh, don't fall too far down the rabbit hole. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky and ponder the following. If an object is in a resonant orbit with the Earth, should we call it a Terra-Tino? Tarantino? <laughs> Thank you and good night. <laughs> Sorry, Quentin. That's Bruce Betts. He's the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, and he joins us every week here for What's Up. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by its always appropriately attired members. Come on in. The water's fine at planetary.org slash join. Mark Hilverda and Jason Davis are our associate producers, Josh Doyle composed our theme, which is arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser at Astra. Astra.